0: In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, just this past Sunday, we took a pretty close look at Genesis chapter three, which records for us the narrative of man's first rebellion against God's command. Through Adam's act of obedience, all of us fell. Through Adam's act of disobedience, I should say, we all fell. But as we also saw, God graciously responded to Adam's terrible sin by promising to undo the curse through the offspring of the woman, in which we noted as a prophecy that points us directly to Christ. And yet, in the next few generations that follow Adam, things don't seem to give us very much confidence that God's promise is going to be kept. The first child born to Adam and Eve murders his own brother, and then violence and all kinds of wicked depravity begin to engulf the fabric of human society like an out-of-control wildfire. Eventually, things get so bad that God even expresses regret for having made mankind in the first place. God judges man's, mankind's wickedness through a global flood. He wipes out every living creature from the face of the planet, sparing only Noah and his small little family. And yet, even this hard reset does not cure man's sinful impulse to defy the word of his Creator. Again, within just a few generations, we see man's arrogant determination to ascend to the very heights of heaven knows no limits. Again, God responds in judgment, confusing the human languages and forcing the concentrated and local rebellion to scatter abroad. So from the fall of Eden to this attempted coup at Babel, there's not much In Genesis 1 through 11, to suggest that God's plan of bringing about a Redeemer into the world is ever going to work. As God Himself says following the flood, every intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The power of sin and the persistence of the curse seem to be winning the day. But then, as He did at the dawn of creation, God speaks, and everything changes. God's word to Abraham breaks nearly 300 years of silence since the day that Noah and his family came off the ark. In this, we can already spot the beginning of a beautiful pattern that will persist throughout all the scriptures. When God speaks, whenever he speaks, he always does so in order to bring about man's redemption. And so, God calls out to Abraham. Out of the chaos of a human society that has exchanged the truth about God for a lie, out of the darkness of a people who have bowed their knee to worship the creature rather than the creator, out of the emptiness of a culture consumed with foolish myths and superstitions, God chooses and calls to Abraham to be both a recipient and a conduit of all his great and gracious promises. God calls Abraham out of the futility of his idolatry through the proclamation of his gracious promises of blessing. He transforms Abraham, the idolater, into Abraham, the father of faith so that, through Abraham, all the world, including us, might be blessed. We first hear this call in the initial verses of Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice that the Lord first commands Abraham to leave behind his country, his kindred, his father's house. Another way to understand what the Lord is commanding Abraham to do is to say it this way. The Lord is calling Abraham to let go of his property, to leave behind his security, and to suffer the loss of his inheritance. Even today, we understand how hard it is to let go of all these things once we have them. It was no less difficult, I assure you, for Abraham. In Abraham's day, leaving your country was akin to starting over from scratch, It meant abandoning whatever property rights you may have acquired or whatever cultural esteem you may have been entitled to. When you're young, perhaps this is a little less of a burden, but Abraham is 75 years old when God's call comes. He surely must have considered how much leaving his ancestral home, the place where he was known, the place where he belonged, would cost him. But not only would Abraham have to start over, but he would have to do so in an unknown land. Go to a land that I will show you, says the Lord. As a stranger in a new land, Abraham would certainly be vulnerable to those who might try to take advantage of foreigners, especially those who, like Abraham, were nomads and wanderers. But perhaps God's most painful demand is that Abraham suffer the loss of his inheritance. Losing your inheritance is is probably the closest way that we can come in the modern context to understanding the phrase, leave your father's house. But even the word inheritance doesn't quite do justice to what God is demanding, because The inheritance that Abraham had was more than money, more than property, more even than a family name. In ancient Middle Eastern cultures, one's inheritance always had a spiritual dimension. Abraham's inheritance would most likely have included all the household gods and idols that were often passed down as heirlooms from generation to generation. These little household idols were considered by many to be kind of like portable portals to divine aid and assistance. I mean, if we wanted to get cute with this, we could just call them eye gods. I mean, you could carry them in your pocket. But losing these household idols was no laughing matter. In fact, in Genesis 31, we read that Jacob's uncle Laban spends seven days chasing after Jacob's caravan after he discovers that one of them has stolen his household idols. In all likelihood, these may have been even the same household gods that Abraham had to leave behind. Abraham's family was most likely deeply embedded in the pagan and idolatrous worship practices of the time. Uh, we know, for example, that the city of Haran, the place that Abram called home just before this, was a hot spot for cultic worship of the moon goddess. And I'm not making this up. The moon goddess's name is Sin. Before God reveals himself to Abraham, it's not hard to imagine a scene where all of the family gathers around their collection of household gods and idols and praise a prayer to the moon goddess, like this one from ancient Assyria. I am kneeling. I seek after thee. Bring upon me wishes for well-being and justice. May my God and my goddess, who for many days have been angry with me, in truth and justice be favorable to me. May my road be propitious. May my path be straight." And looking at all this, we can see very clearly why God's first word to Abraham is one of law. God speaks a word that demands obedience, go. God confronts Abraham with a demand that threatens the deep, the very deep roots of his idolatry. It strikes at the very heart of what Abraham looks to for meaning and security and identity. God speaks to Abraham and demands Abraham fear, love, and trust in him above all things. And likewise, this is always what God's law demands from us. God's law shows us that our idolatry has sunk its roots deep into our hearts. God's law commands us to abandon the seeking comfort in those things that we are most afraid to lose, whether a great name or praise, whether authority or strength, whether pleasure or property, whether the finest things or the most toys. Each of God's commandments demand that we forsake these blind, deaf, and dumb idols, and look instead to the one true and living God for all good things. Each of God's commandments demand that we forsake all and follow him. And yet, by our own reason or strength, this obedience and loyalty to God is impossible. We are by nature sinful and unclean. We cannot free ourselves from our sinful condition. And that's why, in His mercy, God also speaks another word. This time, the word of gospel. God speaks His great and gracious promises of blessing. And through them, God supplies us with the very thing that we lack. Faith. Faith that believes God's word, trusts God's promises, and walks with him on the road to redemption. That's what God's promises did for Abraham. And note that every blessing that God promises to Abraham is greater than the property and the security and the inheritance that he's leaving behind. God promises to bless Abraham with a new inheritance and a new land. God promises to bless Abraham with a great name. God promises to protect Abraham, to bless him with favor, to guard and keep him from danger. And even after remaining childless for 75 years, God promises the impossible, to bless Abraham by making him into a great nation, which will be a conduit of God's blessings to all the nations. And what is Abraham's response? Well, in the text, we're told quite simply that Abraham went as the Lord told him. Nothing extraordinary, no visions or dreams, no great signs, in the earth or in the heavens. No, none of that. Just the ordinary work of God through the mighty power of his active and living word. God is speaking his words of law and gospel in order to break apart Abraham's stony heart of unbelief and bring into existence a new heart, a heart of faith, God speaks, and for Abraham, everything changes. Now, if you read some commentators, they'll try to make the case that Abraham is not actually a believer at this point in the story. They'll describe his journey to Canaan kind of along the lines of a probationary period, as if Abraham is simply going along to see if Yahweh really is the God for him. That Abraham doesn't actually become a believer until chapter 15, when the text states that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. But there are a couple reasons why I think this reading of the text is a little misguided. First, we see that when Abraham finally gets to the land that the Lord has promised him, he builds an altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. Now, this is only the second time in scriptures that they speak of someone building an altar. And if you remember, it was Noah who built the first altar to the Lord. Right after the Lord brings him and his family safely through the waters of the great flood and places them back on dry land. Note the sequence. The Lord speaks to Noah, the Lord delivers on his promises, and Noah builds an altar and worships. And we see all of this happening in the story of Abraham, except with one key difference. It initially appears that when Abraham builds his altar to the Lord, that the Lord hasn't yet made good on his promises. Abraham doesn't own the land. He's still a foreigner living amongst Canaanites. He's still living as a foreigner in tents, far from having a great name and being a great nation. So what's he doing here building an altar? What would lead Abraham to respond as if he's already received what God has promised? Well, the answer is, of course, that Abraham is a believer. He's no longer trusting in those little idols that he can see or touch or carry in his pocket. Rather, his faith is fully resting in the promises of the one true God who has spoken to him and blessed him. Abraham was seeing this new land with brand new eyes, eyes of faith. He was looking forward to the city whose foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Luther writes about this, that the power of the Holy Spirit was great and extraordinary in Abraham because he was able to apprehend with his heart these impossible, unbelievable, and incomprehensible things as though they were real and already present. Abraham worshiped as if God had already delivered on his blessings and promises. Because through the eyes of faith, he saw that God already had. As he walked the road to redemption, Abraham knew that God wasn't just leading him to lay claim to earthly treasures that fade and perish. No, he understood by faith that God had promised him a land and a name and an inheritance that he could never lose. Abraham heard the promises of God and saw that they pointed to Christ, to the source of all life and blessing, to the child of promise that would speak God's definitive word of blessing and favor to every nation who would conquer every idolatrous temptation by his perfect obedience to the will of his Father, who would call his people out of the darkness of their unbelief and redeem them by shedding his holy and precious blood, who would conquer the sting of death by his resurrection, who would lead his people out of bondage to their false gods, who would make his people free Free indeed, who would make them into a great nation and give them the gift of his great name, a name that stands above all names, Jesus. This is why Abraham worshipped. By faith, he saw that all the promises and blessings of God were bound up in the promise of Christ. He saw that the road to redemption led not to a physical land, but to a heavenly city. As Christ says to the Pharisees in John's Gospel, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. By faith, we share in that same journey, in that same hope, in that same promised blessing that came to Abraham so long ago, in the season of repentance, let us pray that the word of God would call us away from the folly and futility of our idolatry, so that we might hear afresh the great and gracious promises that God blesses us to know in Christ. In Christ, God has spoken. And now, thanks be to God, everything has changed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.